It's February 11th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories, and then we'll get to some upcoming events. We've got Kyoki Frazier, Vice Principal at Mokapu Elementary, and he's going to talk about the upcoming Windward District Science Fair. Then Harrison Rue will join us to tell us about Urban HNL. And finally, we'll learn about two programs that aid tech companies and conduct early-stage research. How does the Small Business Innovation and Research Grant and R&D tax credit help those companies compete? We'd, of course, love your questions and thoughts ready, so have them ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, new research out of the University of Hawaii has documented more local evidence of global climate change. A team of atmospheric scientists at UH Manoa looked at the frequency and intensity of extreme precipitation event across Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. A paper published in the International Journal of Climatology, the researchers found evidence that heavy rainstorms are becoming more common on the Big Island. The increase is notable in that the reverse is observed on Maui and Oahu. The data came from 24 weather stations across the three islands. The researchers found heavy rainfall incidents had become more regular over the past half century on Hawaii Island, while they've become less common on the other islands. The team also found an east-to-west difference in precipitation patterns attributed to the shifting climate. All these changes have repercussions on several systems, both natural and man made from local ecology to flood control and wastewater management. A latest study is followed up uh, to work by the uh, same group in 2013, which used the width of three tree, uh, tree rings, actually tree rings, to measure historical climate trends. Determining the frequency of El Nino conditions, they suggested that the frequency of El Nino conditions were also attributable to global warming. UH professor Pao Shin Chu said in a statement in the past, the frequency of heavy rainfall events was assumed to be fairly constant. However, because climate is changing, the assumption of stable precipitation climatology is questionable and needs to be consi- reconsidered. Now, you know, when I, when I read this story, it was kind of interesting because, of course, uh, you know, uh, Hawaii Island has been under a drought. Mm. And, and, of course, more, fre- more recently, I guess, they've been getting more rains. But I do notice that... Uh, and consistent with this study that Oahu has been relatively dry. Mm. You know, we are still in winter, and we really haven't had a whole lot of rain. Right. So they're basically um, expanding on their El Nino versus uh, not La Nina events and how that affects the the overall um, weather patterns. And, of course, whenever there's uh, storms, as we're seeing on the mainland, with several feet of snow, and they're saying, how is this global warming? It's more about the extremity of those Mm -hmm. uh, events rather than the specific overall temperature. So uh, it's good that they're doing this study in Hawaii in particular because Pacific islands are especially, I think, vulnerable to changes in climate. Startup companies and entrepreneurs will get their first look at the newest co-working space opening in Honolulu tomorrow. Real Office Centers, with six other locations in California, has been developing a 14,000-square-foot building in Chinatown for more than a year. They expect to officially open in March. The company took over the former Wan Kwok Noodle House location at the corner of Nu'uanu Avenue and North Hotel Street in November of 2013. They invested at least a million dollars into renovating and building out the shared office space. Real Office Centers described its offering as an open-source work environment with virtual office services, collaborative workspace, and private offices. ROC is offering a 100-square-foot private office for about $800 a month, and the $8 per square foot price would be very attractive to independent businesses. Last April, company CEO Ron McElroy met with several local stakeholders, including 
the Hawaii Strategic Development Corporation, or HSDC, the Creative Industries Division of DBED. McElroy wanted to help build healthy, sustainable businesses in Hawaii. McElroy said in a statement, sustainable infrastructure is necessary to make business and commerce happen smoothly, or in today's terms, organically. To know that an entire city and state are willing and able to lend support in cleaning up our communities the right way is a truly good feeling. The broader ROC vision is to be more than a landlord and also help connect tenants with each other, as well as with resources ranging from mentoring to investment capital. So the tech community is invited to a sneak peek open house tomorrow that'll be at 6 p.m. Yeah, you know, this uh, uh, new space is really centrally located right in the heart of downtown. I mean, a little closer to Chinatown. Uh, right along Hotel Street. So it might be kind of an interesting place to check out. Yeah, they call it the bridge between Chinatown and the financial district. Uh Although McElroy, although this plan has apparently been, you know, in the works for a long time and delayed a few times, he's even talked about a second location in Kaka'ako, which also would make Mm -hmm, sense. mm -hmm. The only thing is, of course, you know, parking might be an issue. You know, all of these other, you know, office centers, Kaka'ako, Restaurant Row, Alamoana Center, Waikiki, Parking is always a challenge, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, that's going to always be a challenge, I think, for you. Well, moving uh, on to the uh, tech calendar, this weekend brings the AT&T and University of Hawaii Mobile App Hackathon. It's taking place over at the Sullivan Center at Iolani School, beginning on Friday at 6 p.m. with idea pitches and team formation. Participations will then have all day Saturday to build their apps, then, <clears throat> then present them competing for prizes and bragging rights. For more information, you can visit hawaii.edu slash ITS slash hackathon. And next Tuesday on the Big Island, the Natural Energy Lab of Hawaii is hosting a brown bag lunch, this one featuring a presentation by Dan Rapetta, who's visiting from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Rapetta will explain microbial cycling and where carbon goes in the ocean. For more information, you can visit nelha.hawaii.gov slash events, and we'll have both links on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. We will certainly do that. Now joining us is Kiyoki Frazier, uh, Vice President over at, oh, Vice Principal. Over president, at, too. President, we'll promote you to Vice President at Mokapu Elementary about the upcoming Windward District Science Fair. Welcome to the show, Kiyoki. Thank you. Th- thanks for having me. So uh, have you been doing this, uh, uh, you know, kind of a couple of years now? Yes, I've been involved with other vice principals for the last three years, mm-hmm. and it's been quite the experience to see our students grow and to see the, the fair grow into what in our district we're very proud of. So mm-hmm. it's been a great so experience. So all the vice president, uh, <laughs> vice principals <laughs> vice all presidents. get together and uh, kind of be, they're the committee that organizes this, and you're sort of the head of this committee? Yes, yeah, so the vice principals took this responsibility on and, and really saw this as an opportunity opportunity to be instructional leaders. Mm-hmm. Typically, vice principals do discipline. We're seen as the people in schools that I help make sure. I saw a lot sure. of the vice yeah, principals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they usually have the big stick, you know, inside their office. So we're trying to change that, and we're trying to get more involved with instructional opportunities. And certainly the science fair and the Winter District Science Fair is something that we've been heavily involved in, and it's really been powerful for us to coordinate mm-hmm. and work with all of our schools from, from the Winter District to have our students participate in our annual fair. Cool. Do you have a particular interest in science yourself, or is it being a vice principal that this came around? I like science. I wouldn't say I'm particularly <laughs> interested in pursuing a career in science. I always you know, enjoyed the fact that it was hands-on. Mm-hmm. In school, we were in labs. When I was in public schools, it was really powerful to you know, be involved with hands-on projects. So, But I primarily got involved because this responsibility is something that we, as a vice principal group, you know, said we want to be a part of, and it's been a it's been a blessing. I think that's great. So, how big is the Windward District? If this is the Windward District Science Fair, it's huge. So we have schools participating from Waimanalo all the way up to Sunset, mm-hmm. and 
all the public schools on the Winterwood side have the opportunity to, to participate. Every year, it, it's grown the last four years. Last year, we had 178 students. This year, we're about 180 students, um, over 100 projects. So it's a really big event that involves every every school in the Winter District, and it's something that we're very proud of, and, and it's been a real bright spot, I think, for our students. So do students, uh, it's not a mandatory thing, right? It's a voluntary thing. So how do students actually decide who's going to be on their team? So each school does it a little bit differently. Some like you mentioned, it's not mandatory. Mm-hmm. So we open it up to every school. Then each school, the administrator at the school and the science teacher or someone that's passionate about science will take it and run with it and say, you know, we want to do a school-wide event or we want to work with some kids who want to volunteer after school. Um, but we've seen a lot of success with the schools that have said, you know what, school-wide science for every year. And then they use that as a way to have a school competition and their winners then move on to our district fair. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there are four complexes within the district, and the two, I guess, largest schools in that complex or in the in that program is like uh, Kahuku and Castle. But uh, as the vice principal of K- uh, uh, Mokapu Elementary, are there any um, highlights for you as far as how your students are, or a specific project that they've done? Yes, there's a lot of highlights. And, you know, in the, the past few years, what's been really powerful is we have a lot of big schools, like you mentioned, Castle, Kahuku, but also in the Kailo and Kalaheo complex, our schools have, you know, done some pretty incredible work as well. So what was really amazing last year and the trend has been we've shifted the science fair has been going on for 29 years. This is the 29th year. And traditionally it's been, you know, the students do projects about growing plants and so on and so forth. But the engineering, the high level mathematics stuff is really taken off the last few years. I mean, we're seeing students building wind turbines, students doing research, you know, looking at tides and the effects of erosion. So it's, it's just been really incredible to see the growth and the different projects that are coming out now. So where are you getting your uh, your sort of mentors for, for this uh, science fair? We get them from anywhere we can. So <laughs> there's a lot of folks that are involved from Bishop Museum, people from the university system here in Hawaii, a lot of retired scientists. So um, we have a list that we've been working with, and every year we add to it based off of different professionals. So our goal is to get professionals who have experience in the field, who have taught, who have a wealth of knowledge and expertise, because the judges not only rate the students on their projects, but they also discuss and promote their thinking. So, you know, it's really powerful for our students to have this intimate relationship, this in, this opportunity to talk and to discuss, mm-hmm. you know, their passion. And where do students go after the Windward District mm-hmm. Science Fair? I imagine there's a, a maybe a statewide or island-wide yeah. after that. Yeah, so there's the Windward District Science Fair. It takes place every year in February, and then... The winners, we can send 40 students approximately to the state science fair. Um, and then our overall winner from the Winter District Science Fair gets a fully paid trip to the International Science and Engineering Fair, which this year is in Pittsburgh. Ah, oh, okay. So, so give us the uh, details on where, uh, where, when is the Windward Science Fair taking place? Okay, so the actual fair day is tomorrow. So, I'm okay. sorry, Friday, uh-huh. um, which is the 13th. So on the 13th, the students come. What's really great, I just want to touch on real fast. So the students come, they present their projects. Half of the day is spent doing that. The other half of the day, they're actually going around to different um, departments, science departments, math departments at WCC, Winter Community College, and they're participating in lectures and activities with the professors. And then on Saturday is the day we have our award ceremony, and it's open to the public. So from 9 a.m., Winter Community College on Saturday, the 14th, the communities were open to come and see the work the students have done and, and to be in, and to you know talk to them about their work. 
That sounds Great. awesome. Where can, uh, is there a website where people can go for more information? We do not have a website, but please call 233-5700 and ask for Jareen Barut, and she can get ah, you more Jareen. information. <laughs> and we'll put that phone number right on our yeah. website, too. Right. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Gilkey, for joining us. And now joining us is Harrison Roof from the uh, city and county of Honolulu, and he's part of the Transit-Oriented Development, and he's here to tell us about an upcoming event, intriguing title called Urban H&L. Welcome to the show, Harrison. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, I, I, uh, we're familiar with uh, um, uh, Nicole Velasco and uh, some of her uh, tweet-ups and meet-ups. And, and uh, this one's kind of, board. sort of, yeah, kind of has the same flavor. It, it was on Eventbrite. So Urban H&L, it's very intriguing. What is, it, what is this all about? Sure. Well, Nicole and her team at, at the Neighborhood Commission Office are trying to get more, more people involved in, in, you know, thinking about running for neighborhood board, mm-hmm, especially younger mm-hmm, generation. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, trying a, a bunch of different ways to do that. You know, obviously using social media is, is a great place. That's why we're here instead of on, on other shows, obviously. Um, so she's uh, the thing that people need to remember is you have until next Friday, the 20th, if you want to even think about being on neighborhood board in the next couple of years. You only get a chance every two years, uh-huh. so this is it. So up until 4.30 next Friday, you can submit an application. I'll, I'll give you the you know details okay. at the end. Um, but, you know, to encourage people, uh, they're doing a series of kind of trainings or open houses around the island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So er, in the urban area, you know, kind of Ala Moana, Kakaka downtown area, where there's a lot of change happening, um, they wanted to kind of do a, a little training. So really focused, I'm going to come in and talk about not just transit-oriented development, but really what makes neighborhoods work, you know, kind of the center and the edge, walkability, connectivity, public spaces, and just a little bit of short training on kind of the design issues and, you know, how do neighborhoods work. So that's what the urban yeah. H&L is all about? Yeah. But it sounds like it's top billing, right? If it's not, is it really uh, recruitment for neighborhood board members or is yeah, it really sure. top billing for no, the no, urban no, H&L? No, really, the, you know, NCO really wants, okay, to, you know, okay. people to come in. And, and, you know, we decided to, to sort of do a little bit of an explanation about, you know, the things that come before neighborhood board and kind of the design issues that people really care about. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, when we've gone out to the public, eight years of, of developing the neighborhood TOD plans mm-hmm. around the rail stations. Literally eight years, you know, hundreds or probably thousands of people involved. They're really asking for three things, you know, more affordable housing, really great active streetscapes and safe crossings, and then, you know, really great public spaces to mm-hmm. gather in. Mm-hmm. So, well, certainly we can, uh, especially myself living out west uh, or in Mililani, there's a lot of visual change as a result of uh, rail. Mm-hmm. But here in town, even close to this radio station, um, I was going to ask you, are you going to talk about things like the uh, dedicated bikeway that now runs oh, sure. down South King? Yeah. I mean, that was a long time in planning and certainly is taking some adjustment. Uh, but uh, I think that th- that is also an important aspect of a more well-rounded city. Yeah, we really need to kind of build the pieces piece by piece. And there's a lot of different programs. We'll talk about you know some of those and how they fit. Uh, some of it's grand vision. Some of it is just piece by piece, block by block implementation. You know, <clears throat> I was I'm curious. I, I went to uh, a sustainability unconference recently, and they talked a little bit about uh, complete streets and an, an, another project called Cyclovia. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you be talking a little bit about that? Where you know, there's a maybe a day in you know once a year where they close off a street and they sort of create some interesting things. Uh, 
uh, like in the parking areas or along the streets, and and people can ride their bikes and walk and you know have a have a good time. I mean, is that something part is part of your uh, conversation? Sure, sure. Almost all of it is. And you know, when you look at, and I'm not only going to stick with the actual things that the city is doing right now, but also just kind of some of those general ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've been to the one in L.A., which is you know uh, huge. I mean, literally thousands, tens of thousands of people riding down the. The streets. It's pretty exciting. Well, I'm kind of curious then. What are some of the things that uh, maybe not part of Honolulu's plan yet, but that you personally seemed uh, or felt were especially exciting? Something to perhaps aspire to for Honolulu. Well, I think many of the things that we are working on, some of which really haven't really been implemented yet, mm-hmm. are, are pretty exciting, particularly for young people. I mean, we see, you know, I have lots of friends here who you know just come back or are thinking about coming back from you know school on mainland and. And they're bringing back ideas themselves and coming to our workshop and saying, why don't we try this? It worked where I went to school, you know, somewhere else on mainland. And, mm-hmm. you know, so instead of consultants coming in and saying, hey, I got a great idea that works, works elsewhere, we've got our young people, smart ones, who, you know, really kind of kick the tires of cool ideas from elsewhere and coming. This worked. You know, I was there for four years. I was doing it somewhere else. It works. Let's try it here. And mm-hmm. so they're kind of putting the pressure on us. Sounds good. So uh, when, where is this uh, event taking place? Uh, it's going to be at Agora. Speaking of uh-huh, great, great, yeah. you know, great, great event spaces, places, yeah. you know, uh, you know, Ben is also uh, who you know helps. Ben Trevino, yeah, uh-huh. Ben is also uh, you know new, newly hired to help uh, implement the bike share system. So we leaned on him to, you know, come up with a cool place to do it. Um, so it'll be at Agora next Tuesday evening. I'm embarrassed to say that. I'm going to have to uh, tell people to look online at what it is. It's on my calendar to show up at 5, but I know I'm setting up. So it's going to start <laughs> at either 5.30 or 6. But here's the key thing to remember. You can go to honolulu.gov, uh-huh. gov forward slash NCO for Neighborhood Commission Office, uh-huh. honolulu.gov slash NCO. You can double check the time. You know, so it's probably around 5.30 or 6. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't start until everybody gets there. Okay, You'll so, wait for them. That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, – uh, that's also where you can find out the regs for joining the neighborhood board, find out how to online. It's really – the application is simple. I mean we're talking less than three tweets. It's like 400 <laughs> characters, right? You know, that's a good way to measure that. Right? So less than three tweets is your, your limit for the application. Right. And uh, you know, I think there's also a street index on, on the you know, honolulu.gov slash forward slash NCO. Mm-hmm. And you can see which neighborhood board you're in you know, in terms of qualifying. Only thing is you have to be 18 by by next Friday. All right. So that's okay. the qualification. Sounds good. Sounds exciting. We'll put that link on our site as well. Most definitely. Well, thanks, Harrison, for joining us. Thanks so much. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Ron Wiedenbach and Ian Kitajima. And on the phone, Ed Kenobi will talk about the Small Business Innovation and Research Grant and, of course, a little bit of the R&D tax credit. How do these programs benefit Hawaii's companies and help them stay competitive in the much larger marketplace? We'd, of course, love your questions or thoughts as part of that conversation. You can call us at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And we're live in the studio, so you can tweet us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Valentine's Day offers us all the excuse we need to make some live music on the radio, and singer Melody Soul will bring us a classic Aretha Franklin ballad in anticipation of this weekend's fourth annual Motown Valentine's concert. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Linda Carroll, author of Love Cycles. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a new point of view of lasting love. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Ron Wiedenbach and Ian Kitajima and Ed Kenobi on the line. And, of course, Ron is the owner of Hawaii Fish Company in Mokulaia, and, of course, Ian Kitajima, marketing manager over at Oceanet. Ed Kenobi, meanwhile, is the CEO of Spectrum Photonics, a local leader in hyperspectral imaging. And what types of, uh, types of projects get funded by the SBIR? We will delve deeply into that whole program. And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. I want to welcome Ron, Ian, and Ed to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome How's it, guys? Thank you. Well, so, uh, you know, we've got a full uh, complement of, of guests on our show today, and uh, we want to give them all a chance to, to say a little something. But, uh, Ian, you, you're kind of the, uh, the godfather of uh, uh, SBIR. <laughs> the godfather? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, funny, um, man. so let's assume that uh, our, our listeners are, are interested in perhaps uh, mm. getting more involved with SBIR, uh, okay. which is a small business innovation research. What would be your recommendation as perhaps the first steps that m- they might take? Well, first thing I would do is probably go to the HTDC uh, website, mm-hmm. htdc.org, and take a look at the SBR section of their website. Uh, HTDC and Robbie Melton and the team there uh, actually put together an, I think it's, I don't know if it's annual, but a biannual uh, SBR conference to actually introduce this program, this federal research program to uh, Hawaii companies. And so there's huge opportunities. We were just outside talking and I looked at the statistics since 1983, something like 614 awards to Hawaii companies uh, valued at about $174 million of research funding coming to the state of Hawaii. So it's about over $5 million a year that actually comes to Hawaii, to Hawaii companies to do innovative research that can be spawned into commercial enterprises. And so Check out the website, and that's what I would do as a first step. So how would you characterize this sort of research? I mean, if somebody's out there doing some form of research, how would they, would they know that they qualify, or, or is there something that determines whether they are SBIR certified or ready? Mm, that's a good question. Um, most, most of the SBIR um, topics um, are actually are put up by the various federal uh, departments in the, uh, in the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so there are actual topics, uh, solicitation ideas that the federal government from DOD to Department of Ag to 
National Science Foundation to National Institutes of Health, they actually have listed the types of problems and challenge areas that they're looking to solve. And so your challenge is to kind of align yourself to look at, okay, what's out there and what capabilities do I have or what capabilities can I put together to actually go out and actually write a proposal and compete nationally. So mm-hmm. you're actually competing against thousands of other companies to actually win this federal funding. Mm-hmm. Now, Ron, you're, I think, one of the examples of a company that uh, has been able to find some success with this sort of funding. If you can tell me a little bit about the Hawaii Fish Company and specifically where uh, SBIR funding fits in the picture of your business here in Hawaii. Well, we use the, the funding for new product development. Um, you know, the funding is really targeted at higher risk research and innovative ideas. And so we we go in that direction looking for new things to work on that haven't been done in the U.S. and um, maybe topics that would be a little too difficult to do on your own as a small business. But with the assistance of federal funding, we can bring in consultants, additional experts nationally. To, to help us address these issues. When you talk about uh, experimental or risky research, is that, is that essentially research that um, is kind of hard to commit resources to because you're not sure if it's actually going to end up in something that could be commercialized? It's, it really is experimental and could come to nothing, but you have this opportunity to do something out, way outside of the box with the, with the help of this funding? That, that's what it's intended for. The first phase is the high-risk portion. That's uh-huh. the feasibility study. And, um, and then... Th- if you successfully complete your objectives in phase one, then you're eligible to apply for phase two. It's another competition. So, so the success rate for phase one applicants is, it varies by year and by program, but I'd say about 10%. Oh, okay. So, so, um, but, Ron, but for phase two, it's a higher. So, Ron, uh, you know, Hawaii Fish Company, I, I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that you're, you're in the uh, sort of, fish growing business yes we're farmers what is it that uh, you might be let's say looking for SBIR funding to to supplement the research part of your business what, give us an example of how SBIR perhaps helped uh, an, an aspect of your business that you wanted to perhaps enhance well if there's um, perhaps a, f- a fish that we were interested in but no one had raised it before mm-hmm. or didn't know how to breed it mm-hmm. This would be research to support that. Um, if there was a new food, um, a potential food that could be developed to address the high costs of imported feeds, that would be an option. If there is some part of the process that's very expensive, maybe fuel costs or so forth, and there was a, an option to decrease that input cost, mm. then that would be a, a potential area to go. The, the end result is to make your business more successful. Right, right. So that's, uh, I, I want get to get a little bit more into that because that's an interesting aspect of you know, using sort of alternative energy to create sort of this aeration uh, alternative. But I want to uh, uh, bring Ed onto the, uh, uh, onto the show and, and uh, talk to you a little bit about what does uh, a sort of spectrum photonics do and, and how did you sort of get involved with this uh, SBIR process? Hi, Bert. Well, it's uh, great to be with you today. Um, we uh, uh, we got involved with the SBR program. I actually, in a in a former life, was a was a faculty member, and I was uh, first introduced to the SBR program through a small business that invited me to to join their team. So uh, we, I, I brought some some expertise in an area where the small business didn't have any uh, any employees that were uh, working and had the the same 
same background, and so we formed a team and, and wrote a proposal and, and happened to win on that uh, on that particular solicitation, as, as Ian was uh, mentioning, their solicitations published by all the agencies, and we happened to have a winning proposal, and, and so it was um, sort of a nice transition from more academic research into more commercially oriented research. Um, in, in Spectrum's particular case, we are involved in more or less threat detection, so most of our funding comes from Department of Defense or Department of Homeland Security. And so the, the question is how do we um, you know, better enable uh, our, our people uh, uh, locally and abroad to have better uh, force protection, better uh, perimeter and border security, those, those sorts of, that's generally the area in which we work. Uh, our intellectual property has uh, basically been licensed from a couple of sources. Uh, most of the work we do is in hyperspectral imaging, and that's actually intellectual property that we license from uh, University of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in terms of aligning it with something that the uh, Department of Defense uh, is is looking for, was that uh, a relatively straightforward task, or or was there some kind of uh, you know, sort of realignment that, that needed to be done, or how did you go about sort of making sure that you ap- appealed to their wants and needs? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, you know, you, you get a an, an general idea of what the, the agency or the topic author is interested in by reading their solicitation, but you get a, a lot more information from actually meeting the individual if you can and, and going and visiting uh, their location and visiting some of their collaborators and, and uh, if they'll invite uh, going and seeing their laboratory. And that, in, in fact, is how we already had a uh, prior professional relationship with uh, a couple of our early sponsors. They knew us through uh, through prior research, so they were aware of uh, some of the research that, that uh, I was doing as an individual at the university and, and uh, the people that we worked with at UH. They also had a lot of um, uh, established prior relationships with sponsors, and so having those original introductions that then you were used as a sort of a basis for network generation and understanding and really what the sponsor uh, is interested in and what the sort of longer range needs are of the prospective users in this in our particular case in the DoD community, for example, helps to understand what the commercial opportunity is and how to shape your proposal, shape your concept for not only the, the, the current topic description, but for the eventual commercial need. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Ian Kitajima of Oceanit, Ron Wiedenbach of uh, Hawaii Fish Company, and Ed Kenobi from Spectrum Photonics about small business innovation research funding, and we'll get us, uh, also to talking a little bit about tax credits for research and development. But if you've got a question, if you've got a business, or if you're doing research and wondering if there could be a pathway here for you to a sustainable business, you can give us a call at 941 Six eight nine, or from the neighbor islands, eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Now, Ian, I might be oversimplifying this, but this is certainly something more complex uh, than than I can comprehend. But uh, when, when I when <laughs> no, I when I, about, right? when I hear about uh, Hawaii Fish Company, you have a you have a running business that does what it does, you know, mm-hmm. farming fish, and SBR helps them try something new that could help them grow. Yes. Um, what I also hear from the uh, photonic side is you have research happening at UH. You have a way that that could align with the Department of Defense interests. So it sounded like SBR 
SBIR funding helped create a company or start a company yes. because this was I- interesting to them. What is more common? Does SBIR normally go to a company that's already kind of doing something and wants to try something new? Or, or is it a pathway for a brand new thing to come from almost nothing? It's both. I think it's both. But, but sometimes, again, we were just talking about it outside as well, is when you, know, when you see some of these solicitations, you, um, you may have to put together a team. You may not have all of the um, – you may not even have an idea really of how you would solve some of these problems. So part of it is it's, it is an opportunity to actually put together a company, I think. It's also an opportunity – you know, Ron is an unusual – very – he's almost like a, a poster child in a way of what SBIR programs dream to be, which is really to foster innovation in the United States and keep the United States ahead in innovation and at the same time help to 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 foster the growth of small innovative companies in the US. So Ron is a, is kind of like a poster child for SBIRs of doing this kind of applied research and applying it to in this case commercial you know fishing operations of of so uh, it, it's a, it, it's a variety of things. Like so, like at Ocean, we will spin. You know, we'll do the research and then we'll look at either licensing or spinning off the technologies mm-hmm. to somebody else. So there's many different models. I think that are p- available. But it sounds like you're saying that it can be driven by that solicitation from that uh, that request for that proposal. So it's it there. You might not have actually been thinking about that yourself, but you right. look at the solicitation. They say, "Hey, we want to do automated drone surveillance of agricultural crops with infrared technology." And you could, from that, say, "Well, I know an infrared guy. I know an optics guy. I know yes. a drone guy. So let's all put something together to to be yes. funded this way." Yeah, absolutely. So it's and and that's unf- I mean, and that's the thing that we're. I think part of what we're trying to get the message out is that more Hawaii companies should take advantage of this federal program. It again, it brings almost $5 million on average to the state of Hawaii. And so this can spawn what everyone wants to do, which is an innovation economy. How do we transform our pillar industries and our traditional businesses to have more innovation as part of their culture? Mm-hmm. So now, I swear it's a way to do it. Ron, you know, you're uh, you're out there, fish farm. Uh, you've got the challenges to perhaps, uh, you know, aerate the tanks and you're running – I don't know what kind of you know maybe maybe diesel or some sort of some sort of uh, engine that's that's aerating, and there's obviously energy costs. And then when you start to evaluate the energy costs versus alternatives, you're, you're probably thinking, are there cheaper ways to do this? And maybe you know maybe wind or maybe solar, and you know maybe create some sort of alternative energy uh, means of aeration. So then now you have a specific kind of project that will benefit your your operation. Um, how did you align that specific need to something that a department like the Department of Ag wanted to potentially fund? I think in our case, the the issues we face are common throughout the industry. Okay, and so and the U.S. aquaculture industry is being bombarded in the marketplace by cheap imports and. About 30% of the U.S. industry has gone out of business in the last five years because of increasing fuel costs, feed costs, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at a technology that we hoped would help reduce the cost for the American farmer to try and, you know, stop that decline in farms and Mm -hmm. maybe um, rebuild the industry. Right now, we, as a nation, we import more than 90% of our seafood, and half of that is farm-grazed 
using technologies and often case developed in Hawaii, but now done elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when I was looking at the SBIR phase one and phase two, and, uh, you know, I'll have uh, maybe all three of you talk about this, but first, uh, the phase one is $90,000, right? And it can go up. It varies by department. It can go up to 150000 Okay, so around that range. And then the, the phase two is, is about a $1.5 million. But no, that, again, it can be from 400000 up yeah. to, depending by department. I see. But every time I read stuff about it, it doesn't really cover all the costs. It doesn't make you a rich man. There's always no. money that you There's have no to profit. put in, <laughs> you know, money that you have to put in to, to actually achieve the goal that you want to achieve. Where does that money come from, Ron? From selling fish. <laughs> <laughs> At least he has fish. <laughs> and how about oh, Ian, yeah. So in yeah. your case, you're doing sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> pilot projects, uh, concepts, you know, you may not have fish to sell. <laughs> what do you sell? It's me, myself, and I, and two r- wet sticks rubbing together. No, so it, it is very difficult. I mean, there's no profit. There's, um, you know, the the challenge with research is that there's always not not enough time and not enough money to continue mm-hmm. to do the research. So, it is a challenge uh, to do this kind of work, um, and that's why part of it is I think some of the things we're trying to do with the Hawaii SBI program, which has been very successful in providing kind of matching funds for phase ones is to expand that program to phase two and phase three uh, awards. So the, you could only apply to the program if you actually win awards. So you actually have to bring money and actually win a SBIR in order to apply to this Hawaii matching program. Ed, do you have a, do you have a um, comment about you know, what, what it takes to keep your, let's say, SBIR grant phase two you know, sort of running <laughs> if you run out of the money that they give you? Yeah, so I, I think you raise a very good point. I mean, nobody nobody makes much money uh, on SBIR programs. In fact, um, generally speaking, you're lucky if you break even on on SBIR, especially Phase One SBIR uh, programs. So that's a case in which the HTDC matching funds have really been helpful, helping mm-hmm. to you know, set up for getting a Phase Two uh, award. Phase twos generally uh, lets you develop some uh, some sort of prototype. Uh, in our case, a, a piece of hardware that we can take out into the field and do uh, testing and demonstration for uh, particular customers. And so, in our case, the phase two efforts, where we actually build and and deliver hardware, has allowed us to now be competitive on larger programs that the the government is is issued in in terms of wanting to transition technology from a field demonstration unit to a commercial unit that they actually want to buy. And, and in the small business sector, that's really where, where the commercial opportunity is, uh, is transitioning from an SBIR program to uh, what's called an acquisition program in some cases, a program where, where the customer is actually starting to buy commercial units. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the SBIR program is a, is a uh, bridge to... Uh, where you want to go with these programs, it's a means to an end. It's generally speaking not, not the end uh, to itself. And so this um, this prospective uh, phase two matching program that uh, Ian was mentioning would be uh, tremendously helpful in terms of helping to to bridge that uh, that valley of death, so called uh, mm-hmm. valley of death, between where you end in a phase two and where you have something ready for uh, for a commercial product offering. You know, one of the things um, people wonder, why why do you need this Hawaii SBR program or why are these programs actually available also on the mainland? is because typically SBR funding is very restrictive. 
it's it's for the research and development effort that you're doing. So it's not like I can go and hire a product designer or marketing, or marketing person or go to a trade show using SBIR funding. It is not allowable. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the companies do great research, but they can't if, if they can't find other sources of money, it's hard to bridge that value of death that Ed, Ed mentioned. So mm-hmm. that's why it's even though it's small amounts of money, those small amounts of money can be very helpful for the companies to transition their research into commercial uh, applications. Well, you know, we yeah, I think this is a good segue into the uh, sort of phase 3 and and how do we get the sort of this matching that the state is is, uh, is asking for. We'll hold that thought. We'll be right back to th- after this short break to continue our conversation with both uh, Ron Wiedenbach, Ian Kitajima, and Ed Kenobi about uh, business-driven R&D and the SBIR. And we can also talk a little bit about an intellectual property, the ownership of the ideas and technologies that are developed and how they can also be commercialized. We, of course, love to hear from you as well. That number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On Saturday, February 21st, classically trained jazz violinist Wayne Padilla returns to HPR's Atherton Studio. This time he brings with him Benny Chong, ukulele, and Byron Yasui, bass. This unique jazz trio comes together for one night only, February 21st at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at 955-8821 during business hours or at hprtickets.org. On the next morning edition, a doctor who treated Ebola patients in Liberia and captured it all in a blog. As much as I could, I stuck around, rubbed his back, and squeezed his shoulders to convey the message that he was not alone. I could not imagine the tremendous fear that this man had to face by himself. Listen to the diary of Dr. Kwan Q. Lai on the next morning edition. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Ian Kitajima, Ron Wiedenbach, and Ed Kenobi about finding funding to stay on the leading edge of technology and research. And, of course, uh, right before the break, we're kind of uh, entering into the sort of the phase three and the commercialization. And what is the state actually doing in terms of supporting some of these efforts for matching uh, SBIR funding? Of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. So, so Ian, I mean, what, what is it uh, that's in front of our legislators about perhaps uh, getting some matching SBIR funding? And, and, and will that help us, you know, help, help some of the companies get past this sort of valley of death? Absolutely. I think the, um, the Hawaii SBIR program by itself, um, I think over the last few years, uh, I think it has invested about $7 million. And it's kind of returned something like $40 million in federal research uh, to the state of Hawaii. You know, some, when you actually can tell program managers that you have a matching program, and all things being equal, and again, it's a nationally competitive program, and they're they're kind of narrowing it down to okay, an award in California for a California company and a company in Florida and maybe Hawaii. But when you have matching programs, you you actually give the program manager some additional capital that helps their programs be successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the whole, so but the current program is primarily for just phase one awards and. Now, the beauty of the program is that it only works if you win, you bring money to Hawaii. So you actually have to bring and win SBRRs 
and bring them and do them in Hawaii, and then you can apply to the program. Mm-hmm. And so there's a matching program for phase ones currently. And so what we're asking the legislature to do is to actually inc- expand the existing program to include phase two and phase three awards so that companies that actually uh, get these larger awards, and again, those are typically larger amounts, half a million to a million dollar awards, that some monies would be available to those organizations and companies to actually uh, provide match mm-hmm. so that they can. And we talked about just even just for travel, you, it's very restrictive on the R&D dollars to use for travel. So, um, Ed, for example, uh, with your company, uh, right now you have the matching opportunity for phase one, but not yet for phase two and, and even phase three. What difference would that make for a company like yours working with technology from UH but still trying to but and, and serving clearly a, a defense purpose, but, you know, wanting to become a sustainable business? What difference would that do for you? Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, there when you when you get to the end of a phase two program, typically you have a, a laboratory grade uh, demonstration uh, piece of hardware, and and so while it may convey a sort of a basic proof of concept or give evidence that the approach that you're that you've pursued has uh, value and and merit, it's it's generally speaking, far from a finished product. And so in our particular case, for example, uh, there's a lot uh, that needs to be done in terms of ruggedization and uh, building an integration platform so that our sensors can be operated within uh, on vehicles, for example, or other uh, deployment uh, venues that are simply things that we don't have the time or funding to address with the, the SBIR, the Phase 2 fund. Mm-hmm. So really, the the matching funds that we're talking about would allow us to finish the the, uh, the hardware that we're talking about, the the product, and get something really ready for uh, a commercial offering. Now, uh, Ron, uh, Ian spoke briefly about uh, travel and 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 su- such. I'm I, 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 I'm trying to understand how that meant because before the break you said, well, you know, this money goes for research, and uh, but you want to sell, you want to find clients, you want to find partners, you want to go to trade shows, you want to to reach out to people. So, can you clarify a little bit about why that's important? I mean, surely the valley of death uh, is difficult, but uh, what? How does the how does this matching fund program um, feed into that? Well, it allows us as an awardee to then see where the needs are that may have come up after the proposal was submitted um, to and travel to keep the research team moving forward. It allows us to, if we're successful in developing new technologies, it would give us funds to protect our intellectual property with patent. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, all the work and the idea could be grabbed by someone else. So that allows the the technology to stay in Hawaii. Well, or you said the benefits of, the, of it. Yeah, you said one of the challenge. I mean, you said that uh, you know this uh, fish farming technology. Some of it developed in Hawaii is now used elsewhere. Yes, but there are. Ch- so that's great because that's something that we do well. But there are challenges to trying to do research in Hawaii, being being isolated from say uh, uh, SBR program in Kansas where you can just get in a truck and go where you need to go. Right and. And so these travel funds would allow us to go to Washington, D.C. or any of the um, federal labs where work is being done. The uh, Innovate Hawaii um, program has MO, uh, memorandums of understanding with all the federal um, agriculture research labs with the Manufacturing Enterprise Program, which are throughout the country. So these are resources that they can connect us with but without additional funds for travel. Mm-hmm. 
we were blocked. Oftentimes, research requires specialized instrumentation that, um, you know, the federal government's very reluctant to put money towards equipment. I see. And this gives us the freedom to, to upgrade our labs to do, you know, cutting-edge research. So I take it that, you know, there are certain restrictions that the SBIR money uh, has with it and that maybe the the state's matching has much more freedom to, to be used in whatever way that uh, it, it needs to be yes. used. Is that, exactly. is that correct? Exactly. And, again, the, the, the part of it, too, that provides some controls over things is, again, you can only apply to the, the matching program if you actually win an SBIR award. So there's already vetting that's being done by the federal government in terms of this competition. So you're competing nationally against all of these other companies across the U.S. So when you're selected, the vetting process has been done by, by a panel of experts and business people and, scient- and scientists and engineers. So now the state knows, okay, so this company has won a national award for an SBIR phase one or phase two, and now they can apply to the Hawaii SBIR program. Mm-hmm. And so they go through a review process with the HCDC board and their team uh, and then they basically kind of they will give preference to um, which is good. They give preference to first time winners, phase one, smaller companies that have not won awards before. And then they look at okay, what are the other companies that have won? And so last year, I think I was looking at the numbers. Or my the off the national SBR website, it looks like about eighteen awards uh, worth around five million dollars, mm-hmm. a little over five million dollars last year. Um, so, you know, th- there's so much more opportunity for Hawaii companies, I think, to participate in the SBIR program. And so that's what we're trying to encourage companies to, to get involved. No, no, Ed, uh, are, you, uh, are you at a phase three uh, stage in your company? We, we are not at a phase three uh, stage yet. We, we are uh, currently part of two teams that are uh, involved in developing technology that would be suitable for phase three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we have funding under uh, uh, other programs called uh, Broad Agency Announcements, BAAs, which are uh, very similar to Phase 3. But uh, we, we, are, uh, we have just begun a, what's called a, uh, informally a Phase 2.5 for the Navy, which is a bridge program to a Phase 3. Mm-hmm. So as long as we meet our goals and objectives on our Phase 2.5, would anticipate a phase three, so we are uh, we are on the path for phase three with our Navy sponsor, and uh, we are on similar paths under some of our uh, broad agency announcement mm-hmm. awards. What I wanted to know about is the intellectual property and uh, the patents and and the ownership of that technology. So, uh, let's say, uh, Ron. You have the SBIR funding that helps you develop a new way that with a specific wavelength of like a light, a specific speaker playing a specific <laughs> piece of Mozart, and suddenly your fish are 30% bigger than any other fish that anyone else can make. So you've got this one-of-a-kind technology idea that could really have a huge impact on fish farming across the country. Is there a... Is there ownership of that? Is there an equity stake from the SBIR program? Do you basically get to run with that ball and turn it into a $10 billion company? Yes. The, it's proprietary information. That's, when it's developed under SBIR, the federal government has, a, I guess, it's the first right to use it if, if they also want to play music to the fish. But, um, <laughs> but it's I'm not the only ex- commercial entity that has control of that information. And well, then so they how, I, how I choose to use it, I can just use it on my farm or I can license other people or I can sell CDs 
particularly you know <laughs> geared for fish. So the government gets to use the technology, but in terms of making money with it, commercializing with it, that would be your, yes. your opportunity to exploit. Yeah. It'd be, I think for the federal government, it'd be more for national defense issues or you know national benefit, not for in the commercial sector. Right, food security or something. Yeah. The whole purpose, you know, just, just so you know, right, so the whole purpose of the SBR program is to support small business, is to actually create more innovative small businesses in the United States. So that, so the, so the whole program is, is, again, geared towards that and actually trying to help these companies uh, get going, do innovative things, create innovative companies, and take them commercial. And so uh, that's a fundamental that's. That's big great. deal about why the program is so valuable and so, why we should take advantage of it. Ed, how does it work with your company when your technology, although it serves this uh, these specific needs of the funding department, but it's also based on UH technology? Is there a is there a pass through of that success, for example, to the university or the the developer of the technology that you're using? How does that grow uh, if the program works for you? Yeah, so we've we've had a really strong relationship with uh, with UH, and we have licensed their intellectual property for them hyperspectral imaging portion of the uh, of the portfolio UH has uh, uh, negotiated uh, royalties and uh, licensing in terms of uh, commercial opportunities that we end up developing so in our particular case as we move forward to uh, acquisition programs which is uh, the end objective for for the kinds of programs we're involved in we typically team with large businesses and so we also engage in royalty and licensing agreements with our large business partners. So it's really, uh, you know, the, the goal is to establish a win-win-win scenario where uh, the, the core intellectual property, the inventor at UH, uh, it gets uh, rewarded spectrum photonics, converts that intellectual property into a core component for a commercial product, and then in our case, uh, working with a large business partner, for example, they end up doing uh, the, the production and the uh, field support, and they build under license to us, or we have some sort of a OEM agreement with them where, mm. where we build product and, and ship uh, ship for their for their buyers. So, Ed, I mean, it sounds to me, again, it goes back to, in many cases, the specific solicitation and finding the right team. So, Ian, I'm going to ask you a perhaps ridiculous question, but <laughs> if you are an excellent person in building networks and mm. collaborating with people, mm-hmm. and you see a solicitation, you say, I know the four exact people that this should be. Even though I might not necessarily be a research person, if I can be uh, instrumental in finding those partners, here's the technology to license, here's the manufacturer, here's the research piece. I mean, is that a pathway to participate? Or really, uh, this is kind of the territory of people that actually do research? Yeah, so... Again, it may be um, a lot of times it, it it could be at some level some level of integration where you are bringing people together, but it also would be you as a team of say those four people really looking at some novel approaches that haven't been tried before because again you're going to compete against people nationally, mm-hmm. so you're going to have to have some pretty special mojo that mm-hmm. you're going to bring to the table uh, in in order to compete, and as uh, as Ron mentioned, you know, it's kind of like one out of ten. So write ten proposals, and, and maybe you'll win one. Uh, and again, the better your team, the better your ideas, you're more likely to win. The one thing I was going to mention is to encourage collaboration between small businesses and universities. There's a, there's a sister program to the SBIR program called STTRs. 
So it's this science, technology, transfer, research program where in order to apply for those research dollars, you must come together, industry and a university team must must form in order to go after that funding. Mm-hmm. So that was a way to encourage uh, industry and, and universities to actually work together. So there's special funding available as well for that. Now, now Ian, I think uh, Ocean is probably the one that spent uh, some of uh, its time on phase three. Uh, and, of course, phase three is an interesting sort of bird because there is no funding that SBR <laughs> provides phase three. So you kind of wonder, you know, you can do it with or without phase three. But the phase three part is taking that, let's say, technology that you've de- or prototype that you developed mm-hmm. in phase two and actually take it to a commercialization, right, right. To, to commercialize it. So what is it that uh, a company like Oceanet, what is it that they can do with a phase three? And then what kind of monies are required to do that commercialization phase? Right. So phase threes are kind of bring your own money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also bringing your own team. And so part of what happens and the reason for a phase three, it allows, it provides protection for the small business. Uh, it kind of invokes this um, protection in a way of small businesses as they try to work with, like Ed mentioned, sometimes you're working with much larger companies. And so um, the phase three provides some protection for the smaller company to say, for example, license or work with uh, this bigger company. Sometimes um, it can get kind of, depending on on the bigger company, um, it can get challenging. And so the phase three allows some protection for small companies to work with bigger companies. Um, and primarily on the intellectual property, and again, it's it's harder for say somebody to kind of pull away that intellectual property away from the small company. They they have to take along that small company with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, sometimes phase threes are really you know like even for like the the smart socket things that we did, though it only went through like the initial technology was funded by a phase one. Uh, it actually kept spawning into into eventually to commercial a commercial entity, and so some ways, if we were, you know, if we wanted to say, hey, that was a phase three at some level, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of, because it's how do you take this early research that's done maybe in one project and actually it spawned off and created something that's very different, but it, the kernel of it came from an early research project. Well, it sounds like uh, we've barely scratched the surface, and there's a large program, and we're trying to expand it. Um, before we go, um, Ed, if somebody wanted to find out more information about your company, Spectrum Photonics, do you have a website we can direct people to? We, we sure do. It's www.spectrum-photonics. That's S-P-E-C-T-R-U-M-P-H-O-T-O-N-I-C-S dot com. All okay. right. Thanks. Ed. And, of course, now, Ian, you're at Oceanet. That's Oceanet.com. But I was going to ask you, uh, where's the, what's the next step for the legislature, for example, to track the process of this uh, this funding proposal? Oh, so sure. If you want to check it out, um, the two bills that are related to SBARs is uh, HB uh, HB one zero six nine. And on the Senate side is SB1003, and this is for the SBIR side. Okay, sounds good. Ron Wiedenbach is the owner of Hawaii Fish. Ian Kitajima, marketing manager over at Oceanet. And Ed Kenobi, thanks for calling in. He's the CEO of Spectrum Photonics. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll meet the Hawaii Science Writers Association. 
Oh, wow. Sounds good. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Roman Flugel and a song called Friendship Song. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.